where were you when you lost all hope? Have you ever been at such a place in your life? I've shared before our agony and frustration following my dear wife's surgery back in 2013 when she came out of the operation room not able to speak or swallow. There was a point during that recovery when I lost hope, when I thought it would never get better. You have a memory or two like that in your life? I know that many of you do because you've shared them with me over the years, and I've watched you experience them. As we look at the central chapter in Lamentations this morning, we discover a very personal picture. Jeremiah has described the devastation of Jerusalem in vivid and even disturbing images in chapter 1 and 2. He has told us about the broken walls and gates, the many who have been killed in battle, the starvation of the women, and especially the children. He's talked of the rebellion and idolatry of the people that led to this scene, the culpability of their kings and priests who have failed, the fierceness of the enemy. And now, in chapter 3, Jeremiah personalizes it by having us look through the eyes of a single man who is representative of the suffering of all of his people. Verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction. This man will lead us on a momentous journey through this middle lament of chapter 3. This is the third lament that employs an acrostic. If you've been following along, Uh, you know that chapters 1 and 2 each had an acrostic as well. It was structured poetically in such a way that the first uh, word of every stanza of every verse started with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the Hebrew alphabet starts with Aleph, and so the first word in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and now in chapter 3, the first word of the first verse starts with Aleph, and then the next stanza will start with B, Beit, and then Gimel, and Dalet, and all through the Hebrew alphabet until the end, all 22 letters. That's why there are 22 verses in chapter 1 and 22 verses in chapter 2. Why is it that he's using an acrostic? Sometimes acrostics are used to help people memorize the text. As you know, the Bible wasn't written down. It wasn't printed out uh, for most of world history. Most of it was communicated orally. It was memorized. It was passed down. There were very few handwritten scrolls containing the text of Scripture. Well, why did they use this acrostic? Jeremiah is showing us, I believe, the comprehensiveness the exhaustiveness, the fullness of his people's suffering. Kind of like suffering from A to Z, except there's no Z in Hebrew. But suffering from A to T, okay? 
And, and that's the idea here. So what's different about chapter 3, as you may have noticed, is that there are 66 verses instead of 22. But this chapter is actually no longer than chapter 1 and chapter 2. In fact, chapter 2 is a little longer than chapter 3. And the reason for that is because every three verses in chapter 3 comprises a stanza. So every three verses in chapter 3 is like every one verse in chapter 1 and 2. Does that make sense? And what else is different in this lament, different than the others, is that not just every stanza starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, but every line starts with that letter. So in, in, in the previous uh, chapters, verse 1 would start with A, and then 2 would start with B. But here, 1, 2, and 3, the, as, as our verses are notated, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, line 1, line 2, line 3, all of them start with A. And then 4, 5, 6, all of them start with B. And then the next one, all of them start with G for Gimel. And it goes on down through the alphabet. There is a, a triple acrostic in this chapter. It's showing a greater intensity than all the chapters before or after. It is the central lament of the book. And it has something important to teach us. One more thing before we dive in. I can't address every verse in detail in this sermon during the time that we have. However, I think we can cover the material by looking at the themes of the chapter. There is one theme that probably stood out to you, every one of you, as we read it a moment ago. Probably verse 23 sounded familiar to a lot of you, right? Great is your faithfulness. As uh, Brother Gillen uh, told us in our call to worship today, uh, great is your faithfulness is not only one of the great verses of the Bible, it's also one of the great hymns of our faith in, in modern times. It's, but I, but I want to structure, in fact, I, had, I, I started this week with the title of my sermon. I didn't even study the chapter. I just put the title, Great is Your Faithfulness, because obviously that's going to be the title of my sermon, but it's not. It's not. As I studied this week, I want to structure our time around a different theme, but a related theme to the faithfulness of God. It's another repeated theme, another repeated term in this chapter. It's the theme of hope. Hope. And so I've entitled my message today, Finding Hope in the Darkness. In verses 1 through 18, the man doesn't have any hope. That'll become obvious. In verses 19 to 39, he finds hope. And he teaches what he's learned about it. And then in verses 40 through 66, because of that hope, he calls the people to repentance and prayer and leads them in such a prayer. So those are the three big units of the text. And let's jump in with the first one. I've entitled point one, Hope is Dead. Hope is Dead. Verses 1 through 18. Look through the eyes of this man. Notice 
the darkness. Did you see it in the opening verses? Notice how he identifies with his people's suffering. He calls himself afflicted. Well, that's not the first time we've heard that word. Chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 9. He's under the rod of God's wrath. We heard that in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He's struck repeatedly by the hand of God. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 14. Verse two, chapter 2 and verse 8. He's swallowed up. We saw that four times in chapter 2, verses 2, 5, 8, 16. His bones are broken or shattered. We saw that in chapter 1, 15, 2, 9, and 2, 11. He's besieged and he's surrounded just like the city was by Nebuchadnezzar. And he quotes the psalmist often in this chapter. Specifically, in verse 6, he quotes the psalm almost word perfect. Psalm 143 and verse 3. The only change he makes is he switches the first two words. You know why? To fit the acrostic. Yeah. But he's quoting Scripture. Then God afflicts him some more. Notice how many times in verses 1 through 18, it refers to God doing something. Just look at the verses. Notice all the he. He did this. He did this. He did this. He did this. This is his, 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 his. Over 20 times in these opening verses, he calls attention to God's affliction. In verses 7 through 9, God walls him in, chains him up, put stones and crooked paths in his way. So here's a man in the first six verses talks about being in darkness. And even even though he lives in darkness, he's trapped and he's chained there. In verse 8, he even says God rejects his cries for help. But worse yet, even if he could be freed from his dark prison verses 10 and 11 god waits for him like a hungry bear or a lion ready to tear him apart he waits for him in verses 12 and 13 like an archer waiting to fire arrows deep into his soul he's like in verses 15 and 16 he's like a chef who feeds him bad food look what he has to eat bitterness wormwood That's a plant with a very bitter taste from its juice. Gravel. (laughs) Like a chef who feeds him bad food. He's mocked by his enemies, verse 14. This man, as we look through his eyes, he's come to the end of himself. Look in verses 17 and 18. These summary verses of this first section. My soul is bereft of peace. There is none. It's empty. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. 
so has my hope from the Lord. It's perished. It's dead. My hope is dead. You ever been there? Where hope has perished? Where it's died? Where you don't remember what it's like to be happy? Let's go on. Verses 19 to 39. Hope is found. I don't know about you. I've been waiting for a long time to get to this point in Lamentations. There have been dark, dark days, dark teachings, hard, painful descriptions of suffering in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And friends, there's more coming in chapter 4 and chapter 5. But those chapters on the outer rings of this book, though they teach us important things in each of them, they're all pointing here to the middle to see this truth, that hope is found. Hope is found. There's a paradox here. We've just read, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. That's verse 18. But verse 21 says, but this I call to mind, and therefore... I have hope. Hope hope is dead. That's verse 18. But now I have hope. How did that happen? We need to know. He needs to know. Well, you should notice a couple of things. First of all, notice in verse 19 and 20, these verses begin with the word remember which reminds us that this is a lament. It's a prayer in pain. And prayer is directed to God. He is calling on God to remember his pain, to see his pain, to notice it, to give attention to it. We've seen this before. In chapter 1, in verse 9, chapter 1, verse 11, chapter 1, verse 20, chapter 2, and verse 20, we've called on God to see before. And he's doing the same thing here. The second thing to notice is that there's a colon at the end of verse 21. Now, I'm not speaking of a colon in a biological sense. I'm speaking of it in a grammatical sense. For those of you who remember English class, the two little dots. The colon at the end of verse 21, it points us forward. It points us to verses 22, 23, and 24, which is the basis for this newly discovered hope. Hope was dead, and now he has it. The reason he has it is in verses 22, 23, and 24. It's at least a four or five fold basis for hope. Let's look at him. First, the man remembers that God's covenant love lasts forever. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Literally, in the original language, 
the Lord's acts of covenant mercy indeed never cease. And that word, steadfast love, it's two words in our English translation. It's one word in the Hebrew language. And we don't say Hebrew and Greek words that often. This one is an important one for you to know. It's called chesed. You've got to get that guttural thing in the back of your throat. Chesed. Chesed. H-E-S-E-D. Whenever chesed comes up in the Bible, it's speaking of steadfast covenant love. Some translations, it's loving kindness. It's the word that God uses all throughout the Old Testament to refer to his special relationship with his people. And one of the reasons that this man gained hope when hope was dead is because he remembered, he called to his mind that God's special covenant love relationship, mercy, never ceases. Never ceases. The next thing he says, his mercies never come to an end. Again, literally. Indeed, his acts of compassion never end. The word translated mercies here, I think better compassion, it reforms to a a warm compassion. It's a compassion that goes the extra mile. It's ready to forgive sin. It's ready to replace judgment with grace. The term comes from a term for the womb. So it has the intensity of a mother's love for her child. The prophet Isaiah put it this way in chapter 49, verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, God says to his people. These two terms together, steadfast love and his mercies, his compassion, are used in a very special place in another location in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, where Moses is on Mount Sinai asking to see the Lord's glory. God puts Moses, you remember, he sticks him in a cleft in the rock. So he's covered. So he doesn't get exposed to all of God's glory and die. And then God passes by him, and these are the words that the Lord uses to describe himself and his glory. Listen, I'm going to read it. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. There's the first word. And gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. There's the other word. And faithfulness. Keep in mind... God said this to Moses just after Exodus 32 when the children of Israel had worshipped a golden calf at the bottom of this mountain. And God still describes himself merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love. Think about what this means for the people in a devastated Jerusalem 
in 586 B.C. Even though they had sinned grievously against God through idolatry, immorality, many other sins multiplied over decades and decades and decades. And even though they had received the just and severe punishment for their sins, God was determined to bless and heal his people. He was willing to start afresh with them again. His very nature made this possible. He remembered that God had steadfast love and mercies that never end. And this is part of what gave him hope. He goes on to confirm this in verse 23. He says, They are new every morning. These acts of mercy, these acts of compassion are renewed fresh each day. Each morning, the proofs of God's grace to his people flow from his compassionate nature. No matter how far the people have strayed, the dawning of a new day comes with the possibility that they can be restored. Now remember, these are not just beautiful, sunrise, perfect, golden days of summer. These are mornings that are dreary and hard and dark and aching. Mornings in which most of them are going to begin trudging the 900-mile journey to Babylon to go into exile. These kinds of mornings are when we find hope in God. Think about what that means for you and me. There's always hope. No matter how much you have sinned, no matter how great you've been punished, no matter how far you feel away from God, you can always come home. He is always ready to forgive you. He loves you like his child. The Lord Jesus pictured this truth in three beautiful parables in Luke chapter 15. I want to read just a few verses from each of them. Listen, hear God's heart in these familiar verses. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, Jesus said, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Quote-unquote righteous. He goes on in verse 8, Or what woman having ten silver coins? If she loses a coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search diligently until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. 
Just so, I tell you, Jesus says, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then he went on into the most familiar of the stories. The son who had demanded his inheritance prematurely, went out, spent it foolishly, ran out of money, ran out of friends, found himself in the pig coop, decided to come home. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Hear the heart of God. Now, brothers and sisters, this does not mean that we can presume on God's love and His mercy. It does not mean that we should think, I can sin all I want to today because God will forgive me tomorrow morning. Bing! Fresh mercy. Paul put it strongly, didn't he, in Romans 6, 1 and 2. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means! Exclamation points! But that grace will be there when we need it. And that brings the man of Lamentations 3 to stop talking about God and exclaim in praise to God. The famous words, great is your faithfulness. There's really no need for explanation here. Just think of the context in which these words come. And every time you sing this song in the future, think of the context in which you find this verse. In darkness, in despair, having forgotten what happiness and hope are, I remember who my God is. And that knowledge does such a work in my soul that I must praise Him. Yes, the one who has afflicted me so severely. My God is just as faithful in His judgment as He is in His mercy. And they are both worthy of praise. This is why Paul could rejoice in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. After being rejected three times in prayer for relief, for his thorn in the flesh. But he said to me, Paul writes, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God's grace was sufficient. It didn't mean the suffering would go away right away. But God was faithful. His very character 
supplied daily, fresh mercy to sustain Paul in his suffering. And he does the same to sustain you and me as well. The Lord gave and the Lord taken, has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Who said that? Job. Job knew a little bit about suffering, didn't he? But it's why Job could, ex- could exclaim in praise just after losing all of his children all of his wealth. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He also said in chapter 13 and verse 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Think about that. That's where the man in Lamentations is too. Great is your faithfulness. But that's not all. Verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. God is my inheritance, my reward. In this case, my refuge. This language of God being a portion has roots in Numbers chapter 18. We just went through Numbers in our Sunday evening Bible study. And in Numbers 18... When they get, they're just about to go in the promised land and, and they're making plans for how they're going to divvy up all the land and which tribes are going to get which land. And they get to the tribe of Levi. And the Levites aren't given a land. All the other tribes get land. Check it out in your Bible maps. There's no land for the tribe of Levi. Rather, God tells them that he himself will be their portion. He will be enough for them. He will provide for them when they have no material assurances of their own stability. He is enough to satisfy them. And he would. And he would create wonderful accommodations for the Levites throughout Israel. And they would be well well taken care of and well protected without having their own portion. Because God was their portion. The psalmist makes a similar claim in Psalm 73 and verse 26. And Jeremiah picks up that language here. When you have nothing, Israel, your land, gone. Your homes, gone. Your temple, destroyed. Your wealth, stolen. It's all gone. I will be your portion. I will provide for you. And this man recalls this truth to his mind. And it gives him hope. Heather Hills, do you have these five convictions about your God? How do you know if you hold these five convictions? The answer is you pray. When perish in verse 18 seems to be the last word, you simply find yourself turning to the God who should have written you off. Verse 19. And you say, Remember, O Lord, look, see, help. 
and you do so, you turn to him because of the instinct of faith. Because you are convinced that the steadfast love of your heavenly Father explains why you are not finished off. Because his compassions do not end. They do not end. That's why we can say, great is your faithfulness. That's why we can still have hope in suffering. Moving on to verses 25 to 39. God will bring relief eventually to these believers, but it has not yet arrived, and it won't for another 70 years, by the way. How's the believer to go on living and continuing to believe that God's faithfulness is so great? Glad you asked. The man of verse 1 wants his people and us to learn what he has learned. He wants us to know what is good for us to do in the circumstances we find ourselves in, regardless of whether we think they're good or bad. Verses 25 to 27 emphasize God's goodness. In fact, each line in this stanza, 25, 26, 27, begins with the Hebrew word for good. Each verse starts in the Hebrew, good, good, good. These verses, especially verses 25 through 40, teach us to wait on the Lord, to bear the suffering that we are given, to remain humble before him, and to accept even the humiliations that we might endure. How do we do this? He goes on, verses 31 to 39, to remind us about God's justice and about God's sovereignty, that his punishment will not go on forever, and that he is in control of every part of it. Again, in verse 32, the man tells us that God's compassion is extraordinary, and it's based on his very nature, his very covenant relationship with his people. I want to pause in verse 33 for a moment for two reasons. One, it's an amazing little verse. And two, it's in an interesting location. Think about the second reason with me first. This verse, verse 33, is at the center of the chapter, which happens to be at the center of the book. So this is the center of the center of Lamentations. Remember, nothing is by chance in these divinely inspired poems. The acrostics, the parallel verses we've seen, the repetition of terms and themes. And now this verse gives us in a sentence the meaning of the entire book. And more importantly, a glimpse into God's heart. Here it is. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. I want to read you a short section from the book Gentle and Lowly that we've made available to all you for, for free. Hopefully many of you have read through it. If not, we've got more copies out there. Grab one on your way out. He talks about this verse specifically in Gentle and Lowly. I just want to read a couple of short sections from page 137 and 38. 
There's an implicit premise in this verse and an explicit statement. The implicit premise is that God is indeed the one who afflicts. See it? He does not afflict from his heart. He is the one who afflicts. The implicit premise is that God is indeed the one who afflicts. The explicit statement is that he does not do it from his heart. The implicit premise must be fully embraced before moving on to the explicit statement. When we speak of what God does or does not do from his heart, we're not limiting his sovereign rule more broadly. Indeed, to the degree that we believe God is sovereign in all our affliction, to that degree, we are able to be comforted that he does not afflict us from his heart. First, then, we remember the beauty of utter divine sovereignty over all things, good and bad. The stubbed toe, the poison ivy, the backstabbing friend, the chronic neck pain, the people-pleasing boss who won't stand up for us, the wayward child, the vomiting at 2 a.m., the unrelenting darkness of depression. Throughout Lamentations, this unfiltered view of divine sovereignty is everywhere at play. Glancing at chapter 3, for example, we see verse after verse beginning with He, as the author recounts all the horrors that God Himself has brought upon Israel. But at the theological bullseye of the whole book, we are told that God does not bring such pain from His heart. Here in Lamentations, the Bible is taking us deep into God himself. The one who rules and ordains all things brings affliction into our lives with a certain divine reluctance. He's not reluctant about the ultimate good that is going to be brought about through that pain. That's indeed why he is doing it. But something recoils within his heart in sending that affliction. He is not a platonic force pulling heaven's levers and pulleys in a way that is detached from the real pain and anguish we feel at his hand. God is indeed punishing Israel for their waywardness as the Babylonians sweep through the city. He is sending what they deserve. But his deepest heart is their merciful restoration. He does not afflict from his heart. He afflicts because he must, because it's right, because it will work good in our lives as a result. But he doesn't like it. It's not the most natural thing to him. It's not the thing that comes first and foremost out of our God. Some people think that, don't they? Some people think God is just the big judge in the sky, the big ogre, the big mean grandpa that just likes whacking us. The Bible says he does not afflict from his heart. I hope you see that from Lamentations 3 this morning. The next time you go through suffering, 
You may be going through suffering because of sin. You may be going through suffering just as a result of the curse that's in this world because of sin. But God is ordaining that suffering in your life for a reason, and it's not because he wants you to suffer. God's heart is irresistibly drawn to his people like a mother to the child of her womb. Remember that. The last several verses here, uh, verses 40 through 66, we don't have time to do justice to it today. But the third point I would simply offer is hope is prayed. Hope is prayed. In this last section, the man begins by calling the people to repentance in verses 40 to 47. By the way, these are good prayers to pray when you're in need of sinful confession, especially verses 40 and 41. I would memorize them. But there is a shift in verse 48, if you look down there, where the pronouns become personal again, my. The man individually begins to pray for his people. He describes his grief in verses 48 to 51. He, he declares to God what the enemy has done against them in verses 52 to, 40, 52 to 54. He confesses then how God has helped his people in the past in verses 55 to 58. And then he finishes off the lament with an imprecatory prayer for punishment of their enemies in verses 59 to 66. In these prayers, we see the heart of Jeremiah as he describes through this man the tears that he's had for his own nation, verses 48 and 49. We know of Jeremiah as the weeping prophet for a reason. In describing a pit in verse 53, we remember his own personal experience of being put into a pit in Jeremiah 38. It also recalls Joseph being put into a pit in Genesis 37. A lot of the language from verse 53 and through the rest of the, of the lament is also very similar to the book of Jonah, especially chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, and recalls Jonah crying out of the belly, out of the pit, out of the place of darkness for God's help and finding it. Lots of imagery that's called up in, these, in, these, in this language and the, the phrases and the verbiage that's used. Too many to describe right now. I'll ask the praise team to come back for our final song here in a minute. You can probably guess which one it is. As they're coming, think with me just a moment longer. It might seem odd to trust the very person who punishes you to get hope from him. But of course, in this case, the punishment is due to their sin, not to the heart of the one who gives the punishment. A lament is a prayer in pain that turns to trust. It is exactly what we see in this chapter. Some have also seen in this chapter a glimpse of another man of sorrow to come. A man who also was representative of his people, who suffered on their behalf, who felt that God had forsaken him. Some see the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 echoed in these verses in Lamentations 3. One author wrote this, like the man, Jesus felt the blows of a rod, 
the tearing of his flesh, the impotence of an inescapable prison on the cross, piercing, mockery, bitterness, and gall. Like the man, too, however, Christ could and did entrust himself to the God of ultimate faithfulness and compassion, knowing that he would not be cast off forever. As Christians, we have even more reason to trust and hope in God than the people of Lamentations did. God sent our sin bearer to take our punishment, to bear his wrath on the cross, and to give us even more reason to hope in him. I love how Paul writes it in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, something this man didn't have, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, Paul says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. It can be counted on. It will not fail you. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. God's steadfast, covenantal, eternal love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Brothers and sisters, this should give us even more reason to respond to the Lord in praise. Great is your faithfulness. Which is what we will do right now. Let's stand together.